Today we're going to review a little bit about where we are and see if we can put this in perspective. We've been in Mark for a long time and we may be getting tired. But it's not being in Mark that is the issue, it's being in the Bible, in God's Word. Whose words do we attribute most of these words in Mark to? Who was Mark's protege? Mark was whose protege? Yes. Peter. Peter, yes. So what we figure we are seeing in the book of Mark is Peter's perspective and, and recollections brought to us perfectly by the Spirit of God. So at this point, we're in chapter 14. How many chapters are in Mark? Without cheating? 16. 16. And so I wanted to note that because there's only 14, 15, and a little bit of 16 left. Whereas uh, in John, we're actually, who has 21 chapters, we're actually only in chapter 12. So Mark has a fairly short description of this period of time in Jesus' life, whereas John devotes half of his letter to the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. It's a very good thing to keep in mind when you're comparing Mark and, and John. So, plus, Mark is, was intending to be uh, uh, abbreviated. Because obviously, the higher the culture, the shorter the attention span. I think that's a principle. Nobody laughed. <laughs> well, one of my complaints about our culture today is our children have very short attention spans. In fact, they've measured it and it's appalling. You can't, you can't keep their attention very long without lots of noise and drama and stuff going on. It's very, very difficult. We have we are in a culture addicted to entertainment, and it just has to get louder and faster to keep our attention. Sad state of affairs. So Mark was addressing a little bit of that with his culture too, perhaps. But maybe not. There may have been better reasons. So we are where in, we're towards the end of the book of Mark, where are we in geography in Mark 14 as we begin? This is supposed to be a review, which means you're supposed to pull it out of your heads and not, not cheat. I wasn't here last week. <laughs> the week before that. Yeah. We, I wasn't we, here the week before. We, yeah, we haven't moved too much. Well, just generally speaking, you have, we're 
I'm assuming you know that we're in the nation, the country of Israel. So where are we? Which part of the nation are we in at this point in the book? If you'll remember, we started out, in fact, Mark pretty much ignores this part of the nation in the first part of the book. And now he's at the end, we're at the other part. Which is the other part? Jerusalem. Well, southern, yes, southern, southern part of Israel. Okay, and it is, yes, it's in the uh, province of Judah, and specifically, as you say, we're in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. And specifically today, we are in Bethany. Bethany is just slightly down the hill from Jerusalem, a couple of miles away, like, almost like Spring Lake. So the next thing is, what period of Jesus' life here on earth is this? The last week, exactly. We have already, we are well into the last week. So we're very close to the end, and that would be Passover week, which is, which Passover week? This is the week of his death and burial. So it's the week started with what? This last week? Triumphal entry, yes. So the whole city of Jerusalem was singing his praises and giving him honor and acknowledging him as the coming king, the triumphal entry. And so that's, we got to keep that in mind because this is a massive contrast if I'm not giving things away. Sorry if my technology is interfering with me here, but it's not very helpful because my eyes can't see the small print. So what we're going to talk about now is the context. And let's have people Please read the first line. If somebody would get Mark 11:18, somebody get 12:12, 12, 12, and then someone get that big section in John. I got it, John. Okay, let's start with Mark though first. You get Mark 11:18. Thank you. And while you're reading that, once you have it, somebody else will volunteer to do 12:12. 12, 12. I'll do 12:12. 12, 12. Thank you. Go ahead. All right. Hey, Chairman, right chapter here. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay, so this, again, this is developing the context here. This was back in chapter 11. And the crowds were pretty much on his side, and what was the reaction of the, the holy leaders of Israel? They, wanted to, they feared him and wanted to kill him. Somebody have 12-12? Yeah, I do. 
And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So they were not pleased with their master. In fact, yeah, Jesus had quite a few parables against them here at this last section. So some more study for you on your own time. And would you read John for us now? Again, this is chapter 11. So that's just actually before the triumphal entry here. Just before. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council <clears throat> and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. To catch that, they planned together. This is a concerted effort to figure out how to get rid of Jesus because he was messing with their system. He was, anyway, we, we're familiar with his attitude, his words towards them, and their response is pretty amazing. So the, this is the general Sanhedrin, the ruling body of of the, of the Israelis right then. Um, they were committed to killing Jesus. Now we know that there were certain people in there that were not part of that conspiracy, but by and large, they were. This was a power-sensitive uh, position, and they intended to maintain it, including their killing him. And it was just to maintain their, their status quo. So we need to be careful how we look at people because what did Jesus, or what is our, what is our attitude supposed to be towards our rulers, our church leaders, our government? What is our attitude to be? Subservient. Which says, says everybody is to be in subjection to their governing authorities. Right. And we have to keep in mind that when Paul and Peter said the same thing, these were guys living under Rome at the time, even being imprisoned by Romans, and they both expected to be killed by the governing authorities. And they still said to be in subjection to your governing authorities because... 
very good because they all are established by God. The only authority they have is from God. And so when we sing our song this morning about God being in control, we have to keep that in mind because there have been times and there will be times when that authority is going to kill us, kill God's people. And that's just something we should not be surprised at, and we certainly should not spend our time crying foul. It's part of the system because we are in a war and we are on the wrong side for most of the population. So, so we need to be careful how we deal with our leaders. Even when they are dead wrong and really bad, we still have to be careful how we think of them and treat them and how we submit to them. But that's not the lesson for today. So the rest of the, uh, here, let me go back there. So the other accounts of this period of time are Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And both of those, if you'll notice, they are towards the end of those books, not like John who is just in the middle of his at this point. So the first thing that we come to is the conspiracy. So can I get a volunteer to read uh, the first two verses of Mark 14 for us? Okay, got it. Thank you. So now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. And they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So again, uh, Mark gives us the, the situation, the context that this is at the time of the Passover. What does that mean for people in Israel at this time of the year? And how did they do that? The Passover, well, how did they do it? How did they do it? Yeah, how do they... Eat the unleavened bread? Well, I'm being vague here, but... The angel of the Lord passed over and took the firstborn of the Egyptians. And the only ones that were protected were the Israelites, because they were... They slayed the Passover lamb and put its blood on the lintel. Okay. So that's the Passover. How in first century... How, how did they celebrate the Passover? Okay, that was another one. The Feast of Booths and the Passover are occurring back to back here. That's why, we're, why, why it says the Passover and the Feast. Okay, well, I'm being vague here. Anyway, they, they celebrated the Passover, if you were a, a very spiritual 
you, you went to Jerusalem to do this. So at this time, people, Israelis from all around the Mediterranean, there were had migrated to Jerusalem for this feast. So the place is packed. It's full of people. Uh, so obviously the leaders were concerned that if everybody was pro-Jesus and they tried to kill him, it might go hard on them. So their deliberate plan was to do it secretly, sneakily. Got to keep that in mind. They were worried about the crowds because they weren't the only ones that could do things without trials somebody happened to pick up John 12 9 through 11 here I got it. thank you Johnny on the spot now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Wow, because just before this, the week before, is when they wanted to see Lazarus with their own eyes. And the Jews, those guys, also had it in for Lazarus. Isn't that just utterly incredible? Our religious people, supposedly spiritual people, can become so focused on the wrong thing that they want to erase a miracle, an obvious, really dramatic unheard of miracle. Jesus' most clear statement of who he is by raising someone from the dead who had been dead for four days. And they wanted to kill him. Chapter 11. <laughs> Sorry. You're going back in time. <laughs> Somebody read verse three for us then. We're going on to the next section. This, there are, this section of uh, Mark 14, 1 to 21 is, there's four different things happening here, or five. I can read verse three. And being in Bethany, the house of Simon, the leper, as he sat at me, there came a woman having now about your box, the point in the Leibnard is very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. Okay, first, who's Simon the leper? An outcast? Well, definitely. If, if he was a leper at this time, he would be outcast. No one would be allowed in his house, apparently, and we're... We're guessing here, I think tradition probably helps that uh, this was a leper who had been cured by Jesus. And obviously, if he has a house and he's giving a feast, he was well off. And so we have 
eating, Jesus eating with an ex-leper and the disciples were there with him. So then we see this anointing. And here we have all of the Gospels except, um, I believe it's John, we'll see if somebody will get ready to read John 12, 3. A woman comes and breaks a bottle of perfume and anoints Jesus. Do we know anything about, well, we'll know more about it here in a minute, but this was a valuable thing and it was obviously very odiferous and it smelled really good. So only John identifies that person. So let's go there now and see what that says. Somebody would read verse 3 in John 12. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. <laughs> I guess I should have had you read the verses before that, but this is, this is whom, who do we know, this person? So, um, they gave dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one reclining at the table. So this, so this Mary is Martha and Lazarus's sister, and they're eating at Simon the leper's house, but Lazarus and Mary and Martha were there too and Jesus and his disciples. So what's the significance of breaking this bottle of perfume? Let's go on and um, let's read what happens. Because yeah, we need to read the rest of this. So I didn't mark that, but let's read. I'll just go ahead and read this. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? We usually don't pour the whole bottle on ourselves, do we? I confess I didn't this morning. It might be wise, but I didn't. But this is, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. That's quite the attitude. Putting perfume on Jesus is a waste. Putting the whole bottle on anyway is a waste. So what's 300 denarii? Yes, a year's wages. Uh, it's not a rich man's wages, but a common laborer's wages. So I don't know what people get paid these days, but I know it's a lot, lot more. Well, that's we will talk about that. But yeah, in today's, um, if um, if somebody's making fifteen dollars an hour at McDonald's. That's 30000 a year. So does anybody own any $30,000 perfume right now? 
pretty amazing event is what this is. And there was the complaint. So we need to deal with this. And Mark is the only one that mentions that they were scolding her. The other, uh, Matthew and Luke, just says they were complaining about this. But they actually were scolding her. So yes, why, why would she have something like this? It's not, it's not hard to assume. Was she planning to bury someone? Well, that might be, but you wouldn't necessarily. Anyway, the only reason she would have this is that they were rich. They were well off. I mean, they do have their own home where Jesus had eaten and stayed with many times. So they were well off. Uh, it sounds, I mean, I'm just guessing, but it always says Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, so there's no husbands involved. If they had been married, they were deceased, but they were, we would assume they were well off. Why would she have that? Yes, it could be for her own, maybe she got it when Lazarus died, I don't know. But it was a lot of money It was probably important to her. It could have been something that she had for a long time. It was a valued possession. We, some of us have stuff we consider valuable and we wouldn't part with. Um, so the question is, we need to think about ourselves and think about what we might have that is valuable that we don't want to part with. And it says in John that it was Judas Iscariot that was complaining because he said, you know, why wasn't this sold and used to feed the poor? So do you have that? Did you want to yeah. read that? Yeah. Go ahead and read and it. And it says, uh, sorry, 12.3, where in John it talks about Mary putting... Oh, sorry. Right. And then it goes on, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said... Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as well as the money box he used to pilfer what was put into it. So John is betraying Jesus. Yes, yeah, so between, between this happening and John writing John, he had, he had come with some understanding and probably develop that here in the next few days or maybe even hours, but yes, Judas was the one voicing these complaints, but they, it, the other places say that they were, you know, this was a general complaint. Yeah. There's more than just Judas complaining. There's some very interesting things happening here. Uh, let's, so thank you for reading John 4 there. Uh, so then the response is, the counter response is, is Jesus's commendation. Would somebody, would you, since you're there already, would you mind reading four through eight? And the rest of us can follow along in Mark, assuming we are there. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii 
and give it to poor people. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 8 in Mark, he said, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So this is pretty remarkable. Jesus is commending her for this waste. So what do we take from that? Well, and I love what, when he said she did what she could. Yeah. You know, she's not going to go out and fight to keep people alive. She's, you know, she knows her limitations. It would, it would seem to me, reading through all the accounts of this, that she actually believed what Jesus said, that he was going to be killed. And of course, if she was well off, she was in groups of the upper class who talk and the upper class is who the Sanhedrin is composed of. So she probably knows full well that they are hostile towards him and that they have the power to do that. So it's possible she did this cons consciously. When they're still trying to figure out that he's not going to die, she's totally accepted it and is preparing. It would appear to be that that is the case. The rest are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and she's accepting that. So how do, what do we take away from this? I think it, our vision sometimes is too narrow. We, we, it's a natural reaction, all waste, but... God had a bigger purpose in that and we don't see that. And they didn't see that. You know, they followed Jesus forever, they didn't see it. Our vision just gets too narrow on the immediate, and we don't see the... Well, what's the primary motive for our being narrow-visioned? Our flesh. Yes, it's... We could have spent that money on something else. It's yes. us. Yes. Look at how the big party. <laughs> and he yeah. told them several times, they're yes. going to kill me. They're going to kill me, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back. And, but, yeah. Peter thought him on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's the humanness. And first of all, we aren't omniscient, so we don't know all these things. We are slow, so we don't really comprehend these things right away. Uh, it takes a while for some of us. And also, it was just out of the realm of possibility. He's, the Messiah doesn't die. It just... That's a, that's a big one to get over. You know, unless you have the whole picture, well, until we have the whole picture, it's very difficult to accept what's going on and understand that God has his plans and purposes. He is sovereign Lord over all, and he works out everything after his own counsel and his own will. It is the will of the Lord that will stand. And we need to trust in that. We need to rest in that. We've had a very serious 
event to impress us with that. He has his purposes for what he does and for what he permits. And certainly, Jesus' death, burial, is the prime example of all time for us, for that. And I'm just thinking, too, just four days before this, he was riding in and everybody was yes. throwing down blankets before him and waving palm branches and celebrating. I mean, you know, that was just a few days before this. So they're probably thinking he's on top of Jerusalem right now. Yes, I'm sure they the leaders could not even imagine how this is going to turn. They, that's why they were trying to do it in the dark. Um, but again, the biggest reason that people are becoming dissatisfied with Jesus is because he came in riding on a donkey, not riding on a horse, waving a sword and organizing the army to get rid of the Romans. That's the biggest disappointment they had. I mean, think of how you would feel welcoming the king that's going to take over the world, and a week later, where is he? There's massive disappointment here. So, I like to cut ahead myself there. So the only other point is, what do we have of our own that is valuable, that we want to hang on to, and that we're not willing to give it to Jesus totally? There is no spoken answer for this. That's for you to examine ourselves every day about that. Because we do like to hang on things. Trust me, I just cleaned out my house. I know we like to hang on to <laughs> So, going back to the very first verse where the leaders are planning to kill him, we now have the second part of the conspiracy. And that is in verses 10 and 11. Would someone care to read that for us? I got it. Thank you. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Isn't that amazing? So maybe he's also a little disillusioned, but we can talk about that. Could I also have someone read the Luke section 22, 3 to, three to 6? And notice a key factor in this. Thank you. So what was the other bit of information we get here from Luke? 
Satan entered into Judas. Wow. So on one hand, we have Mary giving her most valuable possession, and then we have Judas, one of the 12, inviting Satan into his life. And if, just so you, in case you don't know, that's not going to end well, okay? We don't want to, we don't want to be inviting Satan, allowing Satan into our heart, into our mind, or his, any parts of his plans and efforts into our lives and our considerations. Even though he's all around us, financing most of the billboards and advertisements, we need to be careful and guard ourselves against that sort of thing that is purely self-serving. Any other comments on Judas and his plot? Well, it seems like someone who doesn't you know, understand this passage very well could easily read this and be like, oh, why is Judas the bad guy? You know, it sounds like it was Satan, the, the one that entered into him and made him do these things. But it's kind of like what you said, like we, you know, don't want to like let the influence of Satan do those things. Realize, like, by our choices. Yes, and as John enlightened us earlier on scolding about Mary, because he was greedy, he wanted money, and here he saw another opportunity to make money. He wasn't. You know, I don't think there was a aura in the room, a glowy light that came and took over Judas. Um, he was inviting it. He was. He spent this whole time for three years. He's been with Jesus, watching miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and he still has is untouched. Right. Well, I think thirty thousand foot view. Satan is a created being. <clears throat> he doesn't know the beginning from the end. And he's already had encounters with Jesus. Jesus has already cast out demons. He knows that he has authority. And he's probably thinking, there's no way that the Father would send the Son to do this. But he's... He's going to take it, like I said, Satan, he's all in. He's going to take it absolutely to the max, whatever he can do. And therefore, the hatred in the hearts of the Jews is, I mean, Satan was the power behind the rise of the Roman Empire. He was, the, he was behind all of the empires of the world. He knew he could manipulate what he didn't understand was that it was the Father's will that Jesus would go to that cross. It, I'm sure he didn't. He's like, there ain't no way he wants to do that. 
You don't think he knew about Isaiah 53? I think he did. <laughs> I, I think I think he did, but I I just don't think he could conceive that that was. I, well, he, he didn't. I'll put it to you this way: he didn't anticipate the result of Jesus going to the cross. He didn't. He didn't anticipate the result of Jesus rising on the third day and what that would bring to the world. The Holy Spirit was coming. Uh, the church was going to rise. I mean, it was, Satan was crushed at the cross. His power over the entire world was destroyed in a, in a sense. We saw a similar thing in the sermon last week, um, that whole issue is, um, you could call it the doctrine of concurrence, where different things are happening at the same time from different points of view. So last week we were looking at Paul's Lord in the flesh, right, which was given to him by Satan, but it was to keep him from bragging about his vision, so it was to humble him. So on one hand, God was one who gave him the sword in the flesh. On the other hand, Satan, uh, coming out of a different perspective, thought that he was getting one up on Paul. Same thing going on here with, with Judas. Uh, God has his plans and his purposes that he predestined from before the world began. Satan is entering into Judas thinking he's being crafty and sneaky, right? And Judas still, even of his own will, is betraying Christ. Just a little bit farther down in that Matthew 26 passage uh, in 24, this is a great verse to share with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or some people who think that we have soul sleep that we don't have uh, heaven or hell after earth we just like cease to exist it says in Matthew 26 24 the son of man is to go just as it is written of him so again it's been uh, predicted but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had not been born not just it would have been good for Jesus had he not been born but it would have been good for Judas if Judas had never been born uh, which would not be the case if soul sleep existed but yeah, concurrence. There's different things happening from different perspectives, different people at play at the same time. Exactly right. God's ways are above us, and I think we shouldn't try too hard to think about how Satan was thinking and manipulating either, because he is a different kind of being from us. His reasoning powers are not too sharp, considering he wanted to be like God in the first place. So we can't really understand him, thankfully. But um, he sure does surprise us. God surprises us. So after this, Jude, and, and if we read the other uh, passages in Matthew and Luke and John, we see that there's a little bit of time going on here because it, they have been eating at the table, as we'll see in the next verse. And at some point in there, Judas leaves. So let's go ahead and let's read uh, verses 12 through 14. This is another section now that marks subject changes now to the, the Passover. So, would somebody like to read 
12 through 16. Sam, you've been awfully quiet today. For once, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, say, I didn't say that. Uh, 14, 12, uh, and on the day of, uh, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?" And he said, two of his disciples, saying to them, "Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house." The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and yep, set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. Thank you. So what are we seeing happening here? What are we learning? in that section. A couple of things happened. First, the disciples asked Jesus where to prepare for the Passover. So this is the last day, it's right, at, it's right before Passover, and they've got things to do. What, what do they have to do to prepare for the Passover? What was the common thing that everybody did? Yes, the first thing, I mean, the Passover is all about the blood. The lamb dying is blood being the sign that they are being obedient to God. And so he will pass judgment over us. A good thing. So that this is what they're commemorating. And the bitter herbs. And what else? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. And one more thing. There's more things yes. collected over time, but yes. one more critical. Wine. Very good. Yes. So we have the lamb that has to be killed and roasted. You have bitter herbs to remind us of their bitterness in slavery. The unleavened bread, because they were in a hurry and the wine, which was just part of it, because you have to have something to drink. And our view of wine is way different than what theirs was, but we won't go there today. <laughs> um, the only thing that is different if from, from uh, I wrote that down somewhere, but um, in Exodus, Anyway, when God prescribed it, he told them how to do it. Do you remember one thing that is different from here, from what they were doing here? It's the difference between what I'm doing and what you're doing. They were to be do it, do that whole meal standing with their clothes on, their shoes on, everything ready to go because they were leaving Egypt right after, as soon as the destroying angel passed over the city, the country actually, 
then Pharaoh is going to send them a message to say, get out of here. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to be ready. So this is a commemoration, but it's not 100% exact. And Jesus is doing this. So not doing everything literally by to the last detail isn't the important thing. Whether it's in our um, communion practices, you know, God isn't condemning us for not knowing exactly how it's supposed to be done because it's a, mem a commemoration. It's not a reenactment. It's not something that has any salvatory um, value to us. It's a commemoration. It's a memory. I thought that was really neat to see that Jesus was reclining just like you normally eat a meal, and that's what they were doing. Because they had the temple there. That was the other thing. They were in the land at that yes. point. Yep. They were in the, in the land. Yes, sir. One thing that was different when we read the Passover and the Exodus, they killed the lamb and had the supper and everything that night. They had to stay in the house all night until morning when they were supposed to leave. In the in this time period, it added or changed it. I don't know. I don't know all the circumstances. You still had the Passover meal in the evening, and but the next day they took a lamb to the temple and had a lamb killed for the whole of Israel. And so it's kind of confusing if you're thinking of the Passover they had in Egypt and what they're doing now because it keeps talking about the next day in the temple that had a Passover later. And so yeah. I, I don't know how to explain it all, but it's kind of confusing. It was kind of confusing to me until I went back and read and saw that, that they had changed from what happened then to what was going on now. Yeah, well, what Andy said, I think, has a bearing on that because they are in the land now. Uh, they aren't escaping. This is a commemoration, but they still needed to have the Day of Atonement yeah. because Jesus hadn't died yet. And the other thing I, we need to notice is that, well, we'll get there in a second. I've got ahead of myself there. Forgive me. Um, yes, very good. Very good. That's good to know. And again, we have the two different festivals occurring at uh, one after the other. We have the Passover this week, and the next week is the Feast of Booths, which well, the was Passover the Passover is just one day. Yeah. And then the next day, you start the Feast of Booths, or Feast yeah. of Unleavened Bread, or yeah. whatever you want to yeah. And so it... It's easy to get confused. It's up to total yes. yeah. yeah. And they... And like it, in one of the Gospels, it says they call this the Passover week or whatever, but and it's, it's a, they call it that. It's really the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Feast of Foods. It's two things, but they were tied together. Okay, yes? So I have a question on that. So when is the Day of Atonement that's done every year? Is it done during the Feast of Foods? You got or, me. You got me. I can't or, answer that. It's Passover Day. It's the first, just the fifth. 
Is this when they go into the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies. Yeah, that's my yeah, question. I think this is the fact that they Wow, I'll have to refresh okay. our memories on that. Okay. We'll let Tyler straighten us out on that. <laughs> yeah, there, yes. The, there's also, it's easy to get confused, so I just want us to realize that the, the Synoptic Gospels and John have different ways of describing this. The one John is 50 years later, 40 years later, and... Um, and, so, and things are different. There are different uh, festivals. They have some are related to the moon. The Passover is related to well, the, their whole calendar is related to a shifting um, first day of the year based on the moon because they are only a 360-day year, so it had to constantly be adjusted. But the other thing we need to just make note here about Jesus' instruction is kind of interesting, isn't it? Go into the city, you'll see a guy carrying a jug of water, follow him, go to the house, ask the owner of the house, where do you want Jesus and us to have Passover? And he'll show you a room. Um, kind of interesting, right? Didn't that catch anybody's attention? Part of that shows, obviously, Jesus knows what's coming. He has perfect foreknowledge. Plus, this kind of kept the location of the past, where they're going to have the Passover, secret from somebody that shouldn't know it right now. So Judas wouldn't know where that was happening. Only the two disciples that went to make this arrangement knew until they came back to take them there. So kept him from having time to betray him and set him up at the Passover meal, perhaps. Little conjecture there, but seems reasonable. Um, and, and, and Luke tells us who those two disciples were. Does anybody know? You can guess. It's the favorite too. John. Peter and John, yeah. Peter and John were sent. Okay, so you've got the preparation, and then as they're having the meal, and not exactly, the meal goes on for a while. So they are sitting down and they're eating. So the last thing here is that, um, when it was evening, okay, so evening at sunset, that's the next day, because day starts at sunset. So all this up till now was on Thursday. Now we are starting Friday at sunset. So they have the Passover meal. Jesus came with the 12 to the place that Peter and John had prepared. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl, for just as the Son of Man is for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is 
is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So as we said before, that's a, a good comment about his betrayal. And here Jesus is confronting Judas in person, right there. And in Matthew, it, it actually records um, sorry, records Judas's words. He says, "It's not I is the Lord." And Jesus says, "You said it." And still, with all of that, he knew Jesus knew who was he was betraying. He still got up, went out, and did it. No, no guilt, no remorse. No pity, he was betraying this man who he's been with for three years, who's been taking care of him, getting him fed and all of that. And he had no qualms about betraying him and he knows what the Rome or what the Sanhedrin's intention is for them. Incredible how far we can go. Okay, well, time's up. I have two points that I didn't get to pound you with, so I'll just give it to you as dessert. Um, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said, you know, remembering who the 12 were, what kind of people they were, what they were focused on, how they still weren't getting it, he still said, Jesus still said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He was still loving those guys regardless of how numb, scald, and slow they were. Of course, he had foreknowledge. He knew what he was going to turn them into. And we can have that same confidence that God knows what he's doing with us, with our friends with the people we get frustrated with. God knows what he's doing with them, so we don't need to be too impatient with people. We need to be patient and loving. Thank you. Our time is up. <laughs>